between my first and second years of divinity school, I did a, a Duke summer study program in Galilee back in uh, uh, the home country, the old land of the, the uh, Jesus' homeland, studying Hebrew and archaeology and ancient history, uh, but mostly doing basic archaeological work. It was, uh, I'll tell you what archaeology is really like. It's nothing at all like in the movies. It's more like um, yard work in the desert. Uh, it's hot. It's really hot. Uh, you're in a hole. And your basic task is to um, move dirt from a pile out from, 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 from a place that you have dug out of a, uh, I, was, I was digging in what's called a mikvah, a ritual bath, a, a place where uh, people would take baths uh, or bath, do baptisms at one point. Uh, but uh, take, take that dirt and uh, put it into a wheelbarrow. And, and then run that wheelbarrow up a ramp that we had also made out of dirt, and then up a series of ramps to what would be ground level. Uh, that, that would be point A, where we would start. And the point B was a pile of dirt. And that pile of dirt would get bigger through the day. Then I would go from point B, the place where we dropped off the dirt, and go back down to point A and do it again. There were people on prison farms in Louisiana who had it better than I did. Um, I've never in my life been as, in, in as good a shape as I was uh, that, that, that summer. Um, you wanna lose weight? Try slave labor. Uh, working in an archeological day. You're just moving dirt from point A to point B. Uh, you're not fighting the Nazis. You're only sort of fighting the occasional intestinal problem. Uh, and then once you get up to the top, once you finish that all day, you start doing it about 4 o'clock in the morning. And this is every day. Um, and they let you take a nap about noon. And once your nap is over, they... Uh, you go back to that pile and you start sifting the dirt. Kind of like if you go up to the mountains, you go up to Lake Chinalusco, you go west to Asheville, Cully, that part of the world, and you go to the gold painting and you paint for gold up there. It's, you're, you're sifting. Well, you sift through the dirt, so you start looking for stuff. You're looking for stuff that might be of archaeological significance. And most of the stuff you're going to find is uh, pottery shards of pottery, S-H-A-R-D-S, and that's broken pieces of pots, old pots, first century or, or, or first century A.D. or first century B.C. pots. The, lip, the lids of pots are just pieces, and there are people who can look at a fragment of a pot and tell you just from that one piece how big that pot was, what that pot held, if there are burn marks on it, um, all sorts of things like that. You find, uh, find a pot. Now, occasionally, you might sift through it and find something really small, like a figurine. Now this is a Yoda, 
Yoda is not something I found in. This is just for demonstration purposes only. But you might find something this small that looks like a figurine or a little bit small. And if you find something that looks like Yoda or a little bit smaller, you should you, you, you call over the archaeologist. Um, and, and, and they'll go nuts. Because everything they find, the first instinct has it is, is, is it's got to be religious. Oh, this has got to be a god they worshiped in that house. And, and they'll tell you this, this is what they do. Sort of, sort of joking about themselves and sort of the way they look at the world. They, everything they see, everything they find when they make a discovery in a home, in a house, on a street, in, a temple, in something they're excavating, their first assumption, their first guess is to say, this is a religious artifact this is a religious idol. This is something um, you're, you're seeing. This thing has got to be religious. So I was working in a bathtub, and we find things in this bathtub. Are they religious artifacts, or are they just things that happen to have gone down the drain? If you find one thing, you're just guessing. But the way you figure out what something is, is you find two or three things close by and you get an idea. That's what they do in the long run. So for instance, say a thousand, two thousand years from now, they find our house and they're digging, archaeologists are digging it up and they find uh, they find the spatula. Uh, clearly these people worship some kind of flying spatula thing that was a spatula god. That's what the archaeologists did say. But then they find the stove next to it. Then they find the air fryer next to it. And then they find the sink next to it. And suddenly they realize, oh no, they weren't worshiping the spatula god. We, we were in a kitchen all along. And that's, that's how they build an understanding of where they are. It's not necessarily an idol to Baal or an idol to Yahweh. or It's, it's something else. So it's hard for me to understand, process, and know what I'm seeing in the world around me unless I see it and place all those things adjacent to Jesus' love. I think that's what we were saying in the song. For me, nothing makes sense. I'm just guessing at what life is unless I let God's love make sense of the reality I've discovered. The world as is, I'm just guessing. I have to have this other piece to help me and understand how best to relate in a healthy and loving manner to the world that is anything but healthy and loving. So I can't make sense of the world unless I put it next to Jesus' love. I've discovered this thing. Well, let me put it next to Jesus' love and I can start to make sense of it. I've discovered this thing. Again, let me put Jesus next to it. Let me put the Bible says Jesus has first loved me, well, then I can start to understand it. So just pulling it just out of context, it's not going to make any sense. So that's the first thing this passage teaches me. The second thing is this. You know, one of the books all of us had to read uh, in high school probably was The Odyssey by Homer. I've gone back and listened to it and read it on, listened to it on Audible and read it two or three more times. And the thing that always strikes me is how 
much better the humans are in that book than the gods are. The gods are just awful. In, in the Odyssey and the Greek myths, the gods are vindictive and petty. They're deceitful. They play favorites. They make a sport out of interfering in human lives. Uh, the goddess Calypso keeps poor Odysseus prisoner on her island, far from his home in Ithaca, from his wife and son, because she wants him as his own, as her own. Beside the god of the seas also keeps Odysseus from making home inflicting disaster after disaster on him and his men. And while the goddess Athena is Odysseus' champion, champion on Olympus, the gods compete against each other using poor Odysseus as a pawn in power struggles with one another. It's no wonder that the Greek philosopher Socrates said to his students, don't read these books. He thought the gods of Greek poetry were immoral and unworthy of respect, and they killed him for that. Like many gave the gods their due, and probably just observed it as public rituals, but after that, he left them alone. And this view of the ancient gods was fairly common. Once you had offered the appropriate sacrifices um, and didn't do any harm to the priest and didn't violate the basic rules, most just left it alone. Don't let the gods become too involved with you because any short one from the gods was going to be offset with a greater measure of harm and suffering. Getting involved with the gods was dangerous. Be avoided. And on the face of it, this is a reasonable view of things from their perspective. Given the fickle nature of glory and fortune, given our vulnerability of, of changes to our well-being, uh, you can see why these hidden forces that they believe in to operate behind uh, all things, the gods, uh, were seen to be capricious and erratic. Yet this God, our God, Jesus of Nazareth calls us friends. And he wants us to call him friend. Talk about a shift in reality. You can imagine the conversations in the marketplaces of Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Jerusalem, or Rome. These Christians, have you heard? Their God wants to be your friend. Their God doesn't want to use you like a chess piece. Can you believe it? Have you heard of such a God? One God who was crucified now wants to be your friend? You don't attract people to your religion with tales of a friendly God and a crucified Savior in a world with multiple gods, cults, and sacrifices. Friendship doesn't fill the coffers of the temple, they would say. But that's what they were saying. And yet there's something about friendship that money can't buy. This Jesus seems to value people as they were for who they are and he loves them. Do you realize how amazing that is? How strange that sounded to the people who first read those words who had been brought up on Homer's words. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. You're not something to be manipulated. You're my friend. Out of the first century, we hear these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend Jesus has in us. Talk about old-time religion. Because Jesus has called us friends. Now who do we need to call friends? Friendship is just not something we receive. It's something that we then give away like Jesus first gave to us. 
we couldn't make sense of the word until we held it up in context and we received the love and friendship of Jesus. It's when the chaos and craziness started to become bearable. We held it up. People are starving for friendship rooted in Christ-like love. Who in your life needs a Christ friend? Looking at the world through Jesus' love, putting Jesus' love and friendship close to our own lives showed us, particularly through the pandemic, and at other times, suffering was less about us and more about serving those in needs. And we were as never as alone as we thought or felt. So Jesus calls his disciples friends. What do you think he means when he offers us this? How does Jesus' definition of friendship compare to our own? What does it mean to love one another? How much do you think small gestures matter? How might they lead to the sort of true sacrifices that Jesus' love points us to today? To say God loves us, God is our friend, and we are God's friends, is not sentimental, it's not easy, it's not frivolous. It is a bold confession, even, you know, people would say, how do you say that? It demands a bold commitment on faith. And how will anyone ever believe us that this faith is real unless they see it among us? How will anyone be convinced that beneath the pain and the suffering of common experience, there is flowing like an underground river of divine love? How will anyone know it unless we live that way? Having been loved and having been befriended by God, we likewise must love. And not just those closest to us or those easiest to love, our love must extend to places where love is foreign, where love is absent, where love may have faded or love has died. To be loved by God is to be given a mission and to take this bold faith to those who just cannot accept it, to the destitute and the broken and to those who have lost hope. And not to tell them this improbable truth, but to show them it is true, not just to tell them, to show them through our lives and actions. Because no one will believe it unless they see it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.